Hi, I'm Corey Nathan, and this is Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. Your home for engaging conversations about the topics that matter most in our culture. If you love nuance, if you want to better understand different points of view, if you're tired of the screamers taking all the oxygen out of the room, if you'll enjoy edifying, provocative, and fun conversations among high-profile public figures and regular folks like me, you love talking politics and religion without killing each other. Thanks for spending some time with us. Enjoy today's show. Okay, I'm ready to go if you are. So go ahead and introduce me. And then do we go right into your interview with me or do you want to do the news recap first? <laughs> what is happening? What just happened? Sorry. I Did thought you you'd roll with it. Make it be my show. <laughs> Wait, I'm not on Stand Up with Pete. Is that. <laughs> I mean, you can be if you want to be, but I thought oh, we were, yeah. I thought you were the host. Don't make me do the work. Come okay. on. My day right. off. Yeah, it's your day off. So welcome, welcome, welcome. We are talking politics and religion without killing each other. I'm your host and we are co-produced. I, I just realized I, I just asked an improvisational stand-up comedian. I just threw it and, and I could have gotten myself into huge trouble. <laughs> so thank I you mean, for I'm being just, gentle. <laughs> I'm sorry I didn't pick up the ball. I didn't oh, know what man. I got. It was it was it was earth shatteringly confusing to me. I thought you were talking to your producer. I was like, who the fuck? He's, he's going to do a news segment right now. I'm like, all right, I'll, I'll let him do that. He's he's talking to me. Oh, he's saying, oh, I was just you were way ahead of me on that train. Corey. Sorry. Sorry. Pete. <laughs> uh, so, yes, my co-producer is Tristan Drew. And uh, obviously, if you like the show, please hit that subscribe button. Leave us a review on iTunes, Spotify, iHeart and Deezer. We're on Deezer. That's a big deal. Uh, <laughs> so if you haven't figured it out yet, our guest today is really special to me because I've been listening to his XM show since around 2010, maybe maybe a little bit earlier. Pete Dominic, many, many folks will know from his long running show, Stand Up with Pete Dominic on the POTUS channel on Sirius XM and then on the Indie channel. And then about a year, year and a half ago, Pete parted ways with Sirius XM and has subsequently started not just a podcast, but a community called, you'll never guess, Stand Up with Pete Dominic. And Pete came up through the ranks of stand-up comedy, eventually as a warm-up act for the Colbert Report, as well as The Daily Show. Pete Dominic, I love you. You piss me off. You're so right and so wrong all the time. And uh, I'm just really appreciative that you take the time. How are you doing? <laughs> I am doing great. Corey, it's great to be on your show. Thank you so much for inviting me. I, I like that you said I parted ways with SiriusXM as opposed to them kicking me out like a dog. Uh, they, I mean, they didn't kick me out like a dog. Uh, it, it was, I was there for 14 years, like five contracts. And uh, there was massive changes in the final couple of years with the, with the company and they bought Pandora and then, you know, they've they, they, all their programming changed and I just got really forced out. And I, you know, so it was uh, a very, it was the most challenging time in my life when I lost my gig there because I, I got very fat and happy in that gig. And to have a 14 year run with a show like that is unprecedented, but I still wasn't ready to leave. But when I look back, it was uh, October, 2019. When I look back at now and see what I built, I'm really excited and proud. And I'm sitting here in, in my shed studio, which is my favorite place to be because 
I'm, I'm big into being outdoors and being as close to nature as possible. Like I'm six feet from a bird feeder while I'm hosting my dream show. And so I really don't miss too many elements of corporate media. It's really come to fruition. I'm very, I'm very happy with where I'm at and where I think I'm going to go. How about that for a long <laughs> That's great. And can we just pivot to right away to whenever I have ever pissed you off? Cause that's the, the sexiest stuff. Let's get to it. <laughs> What issues, what arguments? We'll, we'll get into it. Okay. Usually it's something It's something when you say something about religion that just like, I'm like, oh, oh, I know he's fucking right, but oh, it pissed because I'm a, I, I was born very observant Jewish family, but I came a born again, Bible thumping Christian about 20 years ago. So sometimes you say something that I know is right on, but I have this like defensive impulse that kicks in sometimes when you say something. Are you, I, where are you now with your religious beliefs? I am, well, I, I'm, I'm at a crossroads because I would identify as evangelical because I believe in the uh, authority of scripture, but I can't, I, the word evangelical has a certain weight to it that I just can't, I can't identify with. So uh, to be honest, I'm, I still have, you're these, a white evangelical. I'm a white. Yeah. Very that white. Has my, even more weight. My, my hair is even whiter than that. No, but I mean, I, if you're the way that we categorize people in groups is both, necessary and an injustice and unhelpful, which is why I've always hated generalizations and why I prefer nuanced, thoughtful uh, discussions. But um, but white evangelical does create a, an idea in a person's mind, just like any other category we might put people in. Old Jewish man, young Catholic boy. Uh, that The vision that young Catholic boy puts in my mind is a, one of, uh, of the, the horrific pedophilia scandal like young catholic boy isn't that the entire mission of that church anyway um so so it's religious stuff where you and i would would maybe disagree or where you would have an issue with something i say on on generally speaking on religious issues yeah i and i think sometimes too that there are you try to avoid this as much as possible but every once in a while the, the word they gets us all in trouble so sometimes you're, you're you might be talking about you know folks not just Trump supporters, for example, but folks who are still like promoting the big lie and, and stuff. And it's really hard because that's a hard one. And I probably agree with you on a lot of that stuff more than I disagree with you. But I'm working really hard to be as understanding, even with folks who are like, no, but there was a problem. And there was, you know, you know, so sometimes when when the word they comes in, I'll also have a visceral reaction, mostly because I'm identifying with you more than I'm comfortable with. Huh? Well, I think it's a really good point and even arguably criticism about when when myself or anybody uses a catch all and how it how you would react to that. Because if you put me in the categories that I'm in, I, too, would be uh, frustrated, to say the least, if someone uh, referred to that category and misrepresented my beliefs, even though I'm part of that, you know, gender, sexual orientation, color, it's, it, you know, ethnicity, any of it, bald white men, even for God's sake, uh, we're not all the same, but <laughs> I mean, so I, 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 that's all I have to say is that I agree with that. I would share your frustration and, and you even saying it makes me more cognizant of how I might use it. But most importantly, I'm all for the most nuance of nuance. Like let's get right down to the granular personality characteristics, moral beliefs, anything, as opposed to using generalizations and labels. So I'm, I'm with you, I think, and probably why you like mostly what I do, but get triggered by that. Cause I would too. I agree with you. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, I wanted to learn a little bit more about your background and have our listeners learn a little bit more about you and where you came from. So you and I have something in common. You were born on Halloween, right? That's right. Are you a Halloween baby? No, no. I was uh, conceived on Halloween, according to my father. That's what we have in common? Yeah. Well, well, one of the many things. On uh, you are really, really trying hard to create a commonality there. That'd be like saying, well, you're born on Halloween, right? Yeah. yeah. My parents always had a Halloween party. What? Okay. That's awesome. You're, that's hilarious though, that you were conceived that you even know that the date must be weird. I mean, how, doesn't that ruin Halloween for you? Cause you have to think about your parents having sex every year. <laughs> My father makes no bones about it. He still has a hots for my mother. And that, that, that's how it came up. Sounds like he, he makes a lot of bones about it. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah, that's how it came up, actually. My dad said, you know, he was talking about a Halloween party they went to when they were 20 nothing years old. And uh, is this polite to say he, he, he said the way he brought it up was, oh, that Hiawatha number your mother was wearing. Oh, boy. <laughs> so. Sure, that's fine. You can absolutely say that. We're—I don't think we're at a place in our conversation where we can't talk about how how attracted we are to other people when it's done appropriate, and certainly in retrospect about your spouse who you've been with and our, our you know, your bride for sure. I mean, I mean, nobody says that, that number anymore, but yeah. <laughs> no, I got I got in a little bit of trouble recently because a, a friend of mine posted a picture of um, party he was at, it was like World Cup party or something where somebody was wearing a Native American costume. Mm. And that, you know, that was upsetting to to somebody who saw it. So I just figured, I, I don't know, I didn't, my mother was wearing a Indian costume, a, you know, Native American costume. And apparently that's what my father remembers. And it was quite a number. <laughs> oh, that's what you're saying. Oh, Hiawatha, the, that it was a Native, oh no, it's fine. It's okay. fine. It's, how long ago was it now? I'll run it past uh, my tribal, uh, folks and let you know. Okay. I think they're going to be all right with it. All right. So you grew up in upstate New York. Is that right? Speaking of Native Americans, right on the Onondaga Indian Reservation. That's right. Right on the border. Of it. I didn't How about know. that? Yeah. So speaking of parents, your mom was, it, both my parents were lifelong educators. My mom was a kindergarten teacher, my dad guidance counselor. And, and oh, wow. uh, so your mom was a teacher in her city schools. Yeah. Yeah. My mom was, uh, uh, she, she got her associate's degree in early childhood education and then she taught preschool like part time for a long time. And I think in her early 20s and married my dad and, and, and then raised us and didn't work. But she, she taught preschool. I remember going to visit the preschool, as a matter of fact, when I was really young. But then she raised us. My dad uh, owned an insurance agency and my mom then went back and got her bachelor's and then her master's when I was like 10 or 12 and got a job working in the Syracuse city school district. And she worked there for almost 20 years in elementary third, fourth and fifth grade. And it was very indelible on who I am because she was a teacher and I would visit the class and I would hear about the students every single day. My mom would talk about her students. I mean, I have thousands of names in my brain and it's um, the thing I'm one of the things I'm most proud of. I mean, my mom being a public school teacher and, and in about a half black school, like very mixed, but most, you know, about half black, half white. And what that meant for who she was and what she role modeled and what she taught us to think, I think was super important for my brother and I. Yeah. And my, and my dad as well. My dad grew up, you know, I think 
pretty typical kind of, let's just say bigot Italian guy of his generation. Uh, here come the black people in, in, in the neighborhood, all that. My grandfather, you know, was all that. But then, you know, my dad married my mom and there, there wasn't really, that wasn't her, that wasn't how she was raised. Ra- was raised in a very poor uh, place in upstate New York, like very poor. Uh, my mom was raised. Her parents didn't go to college or anything. But my, when my mom started working in city schools, you know, you couldn't be like, you couldn't say anything. Not like my dad was overtly racist, but you couldn't, you had to change. You just had to change the way you thought about people because there were so many black folks now uh, that were her coworkers and that were her students and the families of her students that, you know, students would come to our home. And it was just like the, that was, plus my mom's sister married a black guy. So it was always interesting race in, in my house because of, even though I grew up in an all white community, I had these extensions given my mom's job and her family where there was more diversity in our mostly white community. Yeah. Yeah. Our town when I was a kid was was relatively diverse, but it was central Jersey. It was like we were one town away from where Bruce grew, Bruce Springsteen grew up. So it was, you know, Jersey. But but now everybody's saying I was a block away from where Bruce got his DWI. Now that's now that's everybody. You didn't hear? No, I heard about it, but I didn't realize it was that close to you. Wow. No, no, I'm just joking. That's what people now say, because oh. Bruce is such a big deal. Like, dude, guess where I am? I'm like a mile away from where Bruce got pulled off on his motorcycle. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. So you grew up in a similar community. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, it was during my formative years, my dad in particular worked in inner city schools and there were actually a couple different years where he worked at a vocational high school in Brooklyn. Cool. So there were kids that on occasion would come in and he could tell that they were hungry. He, they, he could tell that they hadn't been in a home. Uh, so there were a couple occasions where a fellow named Hayden Gaskin and Vaymon Biggs, they ended up living with us for extended periods of time. Oh, wow. Uh, but having, having, and then, you know, obviously spending a lot of time in his school, that those were formative in how I saw the world and saw my neighbor and who was my neighbor. It wasn't sure. just Ira Rosenheim, who's my best friend to this day next door. Oh, well, Ira, everybody knows the guy named Ira <laughs> Rosenheim if you're from Brooklyn. Yeah, it just expanded, expanded my world and who I identified with. So it sounds like you had similar situations. So your dad's yeah. views evolved over time? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I've seen my dad do a full evolution. I mean, he was, yeah, for sure. For sure. My dad is culturally of one mind. Uh, like the vast majority of people that came from where he came from and grew up the way he did, but given my mom and who she was, and then frankly, my brother, I'm not quite sure why I think my brother got radicalized as a young man into kind of leftist ideology to be really shorthand. But I mean, from from Pearl Jam and Eddie Vedder to Noam Chomsky, from the music that he listened to, to the literature that he read, he would he was in his bedroom in this upstate New York, rural, suburban, but upper, you know, class, new community, like contemporary home, doing well. But he was educating himself on left-wing politics and, and history and moral philosophy. And, you know, he... He was a real radical. My brother always was. He was a skateboarder and a snowboarder and, you know, tattoos and smoking and drugs and went to rehab by the time he was 18. And But all of his, everything that he is made me more than anything else. And it also, to answer your question, made my dad. Mm. My brother is so highly intelligent that when we would argue about anything, moral philosophy, the politics, the religion, to gender and, and race, my brother would just educate us. In such a way that was it could become it was it would be embarrassing if we would try to make an argument because we had so little of the 
the information, I think, he learned it all himself. And, you know, he introduced me to Howard Zinn and, and that was that for me. I was wow. off. I, I have to confess that as I was looking, I was doing a little bit of homework on your background. I realized that I am, I do have prejudices that stick. For example, sure. when I was thinking of um, upstate New York, I just assumed that you grew up with a mullet. Uh, I assume that you drew, drove uh, like a 15 year old Camaro. Is that, uh, I, that's pretty hateful of me to think of all people who grew up in upstate New York that way, right? I wouldn't say hateful. Not, neither of those things are, are necessarily penalties. And at the time, I think those are two things that would get you laid. So I mean, <laughs> you do have to consider the times that we're in. And, you know, I mean, I was parachute pants and a Plymouth Reliant K car. I had a rat tail. I was a skateboarder, but I was also a jock. Uh, the older I got, the more clean cut I think I got. The more okay. you know, radical my brother got, the more straight and narrow that I went. I didn't do drugs or, or drink. I never had a drink in high oh, wow. school in upstate New York. Of course, all my friends is upstate New York in the 90s. But um, yeah, no, I was, I, I'm probably not what would be in your mind's eye of a person for the most part. I don't yeah. think that's why these generalizations don't gen, they don't usually work, although I am the most judgmental person in the world. And I'm, I'm sadly, it's my probably my best quality because I'm generally right. <laughs> and a lot of that has to do with me being a, an audience warm-up comedian and looking at an audience and having to tell a story about them. And the more I did it, the better I got. And I could tell you, if I saw a guy in the audience, I could tell you if he was European or even Canadian, uh, I could tell. And I was frighteningly accurate. I was going to ask you about that. I was going to ask you if you're a people watcher because you seem like an empath, you know, from having listened yes. to your show for so long. And it's like, it's like you take in this dynamic set of information about whether it's people or events, internalize it, and then reflect it back to your audience, whether it's on the radio and stand up that you've like processed. Is that kind of how it goes? Well, I, I love your choice of wording. It makes me sound thoughtful and intelligent. I don't know if it's that organized or if I have that practice, but there's no doubt that I am a people watcher. I always have been. And it's interesting to watch my younger daughter uh, be the same way. And with, with the people watching, in my case, at least comes a yeah a deep sense of empathy where it can become burdensome. My wife has tried to teach me to, you know, the difference between feeling someone's pain and acknowledging their pain and, and making it your pain. And I have made other people's pain, my pain. I'm not ashamed of that. And I, but I don't, I don't, it, it's hard. You have to be able to separate that to carry on in your life and, and, and not there's enough in your own life. So it's, it, but that's hard for me. If I hear about like Palestinians, I remember thinking back in that, I think it was a 2006 infatada Israelis like killed like 1200 Palestinians over a short amount of time. And I remember just thinking about those kids, like as they're getting bombed in their homes and what that must have been like and not being able to sleep. And that's how I describe my kind of sense of empathy, knowing that people somewhere in the world are suffering, which is why I work with this organization, Give Well, that I wear, I'm wearing the t-shirt if people aren't, aren't able to see it. And uh, because they, they work to help people who are in, in the toughest situations in the world by giving them the resources that they need and more efficiently than almost any other nonprofit. But so, yeah, I think a lot about other people and I internalize their pain. You mentioned your wife, Valerie, uh, since since you brought her up, tell us about Val. She seems like a, a badass at everything. How'd you meet? How's she, how's she doing? And where can people learn more about all the good stuff she's doing? Well, thank you for asking about her. People never do that. And I really appreciate it. She is a, a person who 
grew up in Detroit, hard scrabble, first generation, both her parents from Italy, uh, both uh, her dad, extremely Catholic, like Vatican, like Opus Dei Catholic and her mom along for the ride. But Val had a very challenging childhood and adolescence and terrible relationships with her parents a real struggle in a lot of different ways because of the, the family dynamic. And I think it's a very common thing, by the way, for first generation Americans, you know, they're, they're growing up in this completely different country than their, than their parents grew up in. Even, even though their parents came here to raise them, there's this disconnect, which creates uh, often, not always, but a real rift uh, that sometimes never, never heals. And that's the case with my wife and, and her parents, but they're also, they, they also struggle with like different mental illnesses as we all do, but they're, you know, they're in a more severe, I think, way. So, so Val had a very tough childhood, but that made her this very tough person who is a problem solver and who is an extremely hard worker and uh, just a tough woman. And that's kind of what I needed as a partner. And so we complement each other. We're also very similar in a lot of ways too, which can lead to a lot of problems. We've had a volatile marriage, 20 years we've been together, but it's been up and down but we stick it through. And in the good times, it's so, so good. And so she started her own business a couple of years ago when the girls were older and it's like a health and fitness. She's like a health coach. She does personal training. She does yoga. She does a lot of stuff with kids. And now she does a lot of stuff with special needs people. So it's pretty crazy to to hear her virtually training people, coaching people who are down syndrome, uh, different kind of autism. She has a client who is uh, has cerebral palsy. She's not able to train her just to be there with her. Uh, and, but she's a hero. My wife is in terms of her work, in terms of her life, in terms of mainly the best thing about Val is probably the the mother that she has been given that she didn't have that kind of mom. And she was the type of mom that other women would come to and still do for advice from their pregnancies to their parenting. My wife was the old wise person at the top of the hill and she still is, and she's mine as well. So that's who she is. She's a very wise woman who's evolving and constantly getting educated and curious about the universe, really curious with the universe. And, uh, and she's awesome. And her, she's on Instagram. If anybody wants to look her up, Valerie.Vendrami, true you health and fitness.com, or you can just contact me. And if, if you have any interest in any of the work my wife does. Give, give the uh, IG thing to uh, one more time. Valerie.Vendrami, V-E-N-D-R-A-M as in Mary E. That's, and that's then awesome. she's so, hot as hell. So if you're a creep, you just want to go look, stare at shots at my wife. <laughs> I mean, if that gets you there, fine. You know, you know, it's funny. One of the things you mentioned about Valerie, I, I've never really shared this on this program or the, uh, the program we do in the entertainment industry, but it really blows my mind to think about the family that Lisa came from and the mom that she, that my wife uh, and the mom that she is both, both of her parents ended up dying of some version or, result of, of long-term substance abuse. Oh, dear. Uh, she grew up in Alabama and, uh, you know, Oh she, God. Wow. You're right. You, this picture you're painting is see <laughs> how I get that. I'm telling you, I'm sorry. I've read, I, I can tell you the rest. Go, go. Okay. Fill in the blanks. Let, let's hear it. Let's hear you. Do your you thing. grew up in Alabama and both her parents are addicts. Yeah. I mean, the percentage of people who make it out of that with any kind of happiness and health and success is very, very low. But those who do, I think tend to be very successful in life because of the resilience that they had established to survive a childhood of, I mean, you could start with just two addicts, number one. I mean, most people, a lot of people have one parent as an addict and a lot have two, frankly, but it's, 
it's it sounds like a nightmare of, of a childhood. Plus, Alabama. I mean, generally speaking, you don't think of affluence and resources. So I'm just assuming that that if they were both addicts, they didn't have enough affluence, or they didn't have you know the resources maybe that they needed or the incentives that they needed to you know to get well. But that's that's all assumptions. How did I do? Not too bad. Yeah, I would give you about a seventy, maybe actually a little more, seventy six point eight percent. We're her parents' cousins. No, they were not. Not not that we know of. Uh, distant cousins, probably. But uh, no, she she's an awesome. It's she's a superhero of a mom. We got three kids. Uh, Savannah's about to turn twenty next month. Emerson's about to turn. Oh, we're kind of in the same boat. So Emerson is about to turn sixteen, and uh, he's been driving, and he'll be getting his license if all goes well in about a week or two. Uh, and then Jackie boy uh, is maybe like has a similar story to your brother. Uh, he's the middle one. Uh, and he is uh, 26 months sober. So oh, wow. we, we have a lot. Sorry, I didn't expect to get emotional. Um, we have a lot to be proud of with each of our kids. But Lisa, um, I mean, she I didn't know where it came from, when, especially when there were babies and toddlers and stuff. Um, I, I, it just blew my mind how innately talented she was at like just I woke up one day and one of my kids is brushing her teeth. Like, and I'm like, how did that happen? Yeah. You, you know, just like little things that just pop up that way. I actually, my daughters don't still don't brush their teeth. So you, <laughs> you're doing better than me. I mean, neither one of them have to just scream at them. Like, are you going to gonna clean those things? No. <laughs> That's tough, dude. I mean, I, uh, I'd uh, be interested in hearing more about Jackie. Yeah. Uh, but it's hard. It's hard. Cause you, I, you know, I, I, I'm worried about the worst. My wife is, is less worried, but when your kids start, you know, drinking and, and trying drugs and stuff, it's, it, it's hard to predict and understand what it is. And you, all you do, I think is project your own experience with that or anybody, you know. And so I project my brother's experience on my daughter's like, look what happened to your uncle. And you should talk to him about that, but it's, it's, it's very hard to manage it. And it's very understand where it comes from. And I'm so sorry that, uh, is it, he has had uh, a struggle. Boy, yeah. Jackie boy. But yesterday was exactly 26 months. Yeah. So right. did, he, did he, do you talk about it openly? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. No, nah, he, he uh, didn't go away to rehab. One of the blessings out of it is a friend of his had gone through something about a year prior and said, Jackie, boy, we got to go to this thing. And it was like a teenager's AA type thing. And to this day, he goes almost every every night. He's Great. founded adult groups. and Great. Yeah, I think that's one of the really interesting things about support groups is that they, and I'm just saying this out of my ass, this isn't personal experience, but what it seems is you go for you know, this region of, of addiction, substance abuse, whatever, but you stay for that community of people. And it's just such a natural, it's such a good thing to do to contact and connect with people and the kind of within those rules, especially anonymously and with all the other kind of rules and guidance that comes with a certain organization of those meetings and those conversations. And I think it's super helpful, especially for men who are less likely to communicate and in these emotional and personal ways. So I, I think it's great. I've often, I used to do a joke in my stand-up bag. Like, I wish I was an addict. I can't stay consistent at anything. <laughs> There's nothing I do every day. You're not that committed. <laughs> Plus the support groups look like a lot of fun. I mean, it looks like, like, I want to just go to an AA meeting. Like, hi, uh, I am Pete. I'm not an alcoholic. 
<laughs> but this seems you guys, all the guys that I know that go here seem great. Uh, what do I got? What I got to do? There are men's groups, though. There are groups, you know, out there. And, you know, I've created this community with my podcast. So I just talk to so many people every day, often on the record that I feel I never feel alone and I don't have that issue. You know, what's really cool is I, I was going to bring up your your show in particular, one of the things that stands out, if you listen even for a week, you'll glean right away, number one, the impressiveness of the guests that you bring on every day. But in particular, about, I don't know if it's about half of them, but about half of them are like your regular rotation, Aaron Carroll and um, Eric Siegel, Ali Soufan, uh, Barry, like there are all these regulars that show up. It's like you're com- very much your community in a lot, in a lot more ways than one. Yeah. Yeah. I made it no secret that I launched a concerted effort to become personal friends with people who start as guests on my show. Like it's been an amazing 15 years because my network of friends are these highly impressive intellectualists, journalists, activists, obviously artists and comedians. And um, it feels so happy and fortunate and excited every day that I get to be friends with these folks and talk to them and ask them questions. I can, I have access to like, you know, just about any type of person I want and I'm, my curiosity is insatiable. So that's a pretty good mix that I don't have to necessarily look it up on Google or I can just call up a guy and be like, you know, what, what is this thing about the, the UK variant? And I'll talk to that doctor about, you know, that that strain of COVID or, or whatever it is. I mean, national security, it's great to be called up. You mentioned Ali Soufan. He's a close personal friend of mine. And anybody, I you know, in any field, almost any field of anything that you want to talk about, I know a few people there to discuss these things. So I just I just love my life because of that, that right there. So. I forgot to mention something earlier. I, I heard you on a recent interview talk about how you prep, how your typical day goes, how you prep for your show. And <laughs> I really am a teller because the first thing you said about how you prep for a show is you're like, well, I got to see what Val and the girls need. And, you know, and I'm like, because just doing, you know, one or two episodes a week, all I could think about is like, okay, I got to do my research. I got to read. I got to edit. I got to, you know, all these things. And you're like, well, I got to see what Val needs. And then, uh, you know, we'll see what happens from there. <laughs> well, I mean, it's been my full-time job for 15 years. And so I might, it might sound like I'm making it sound easy or something, but it's, it's, it's not. And I don't have a typical day. I'm actually struggling right now. I just had a long talk with Val about, and I, and I realized that the best thing she said is like, yeah, everybody is, struggling with this, not having enough time. And it's not anything to do with pandemic. It's like Western culture based really. And feeling like you're always working and all of that. And so it's, for me, it comes down to what my priorities are, what my wife and my daughters really have to take priority over everything else. And so what, what do they need from me? And increasingly they need less because my daughters are very, you know, they're independent, which is awesome. That was the plan. And my wife has never needed anything from me ever, which has been a problem. She doesn't, let me be clear. My wife does not need me, Corey. <laughs> They're like, you know, whatever the uh, phrase, like the like codependency. Yeah. What's the opposite of that? I think it's, I think it's uh, being single. Like my wife is <laughs> practically single. Like I am here to help. This morning I brushed off the car so she could take it. Like I did that. She didn't need me to. But she appreciated it. Just, you know, it's a joke, 
but we really are. She's very, my wife is like super independent person. Uh, and so my, my, like I, and I also have the shed, like my, my work-life balance is super important to me. I struggle with it, but having a shed that's, you know, 200 feet from my house, this is my workspace and my nap space. And I could say, talk for hours about the benefits of napping, but, um, you know, so I, I try to have a good balance, but I, yeah, I prep a lot. I spent a lot of time reading and preparing and thinking and writing, not really writing, but listening to and getting ready, you know, making notes for, for my interviews, for the podcast, and then putting it together every night is uh, several hours of work. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have a, a regular reading diet? Is there, do you, are you more of a newspaper guy, magazine guy, novel books, long form essay guy? All of it. Yeah. I, I have to read long form articles and books for interviews because yeah. I'm going to interview the, uh, the author or the journalist and for my own satisfaction. But I also, sure. I, I, I'm on social media a lot, mainly Twitter, just, you know, for news and, and people's different takes on things. And uh, I also, yeah, I watch, I don't watch that much actually. If anything, I listen to, to podcasts, uh, but I don't, mostly it's reading, you know, online newspapers, New York times, Washington post, ProPublica, things like that. And uh, as well as, you know, I do right wing watch stuff. Like I watch like a lot of the conservative blogs and, or whatever you want to call it, conservative, like the movement, the cult, you know, I study the cult a lot. Yeah. What they're saying. I, I listen to them a lot. It's more out of fascination. You know, I have a, a background in the theater and it's almost like, you know, Shakespeare wrote really good villains because he wrote them multidimensionally, you know, a character like Iago was really interesting character. And I wish I could see that level. You used the word nuance. It was one of my favorite words. I wish I could see that level of nuance in some of the characters I listen to at, you know, five minute increments because that's about all I can take. It's hard. It's hard, I think, with them because you're constantly questioning their motives. I am at least sorry. I didn't mean to speak for you. When you're listening to it's not Yago. It's not a villain that's been written with different layers, even from Yago to uh, from Shakespeare to a Lee Child's book. Like Jack Reacher is Lee Childs uh, is the author of that. Like there's the character development that you get, whereas you listen to certain, especially with the right, you could say this about the left too, but certainly with the right, I don't, I always question, do they believe what they're saying? Or are they just trying to make money? Is this a grift? Most on the left absolutely believe what they're saying, which is why they don't do as well in media. It's just not as interesting, but some I definitely don't. I think my, my old friend, Jimmy Dore, what he's doing now, I don't, I don't buy into a lot of what he's saying. I think, now, Glenn Greenwald doesn't necessarily believe some of what he's doing and saying. I question, you know, a lot of a lot of those guys, but they're they're nothing compared to the right. So, but I always question their motives. What are they doing? Do they really believe what they just said, and obviously, a lot of them definitely do. So, yeah, I think uh, I have one friend who's really successful in this medium, and he has a certain audience that definitely skews very pretty hard right. And I've seen his evolution, but he's, he's also really marketing savvy. And I've just seen him pick up on, oh, that did well with the audience. I think he just, there's a part of him. He, I think, I still think he's a good guy. So I think some of the more offensive stuff that he's done or what he might tweet on a daily basis is definitely performative, you know? So, you know, it's, it's performative. Performative is okay. I'm, I'm performing as I'm talking to you right now. This is different than it would be if we weren't recording it. No doubt. I mean, not much, 
And I hope that I sound the same way I do when you've heard me on the radio and on the podcasts, but I, cause I want to be consistent, but there's a difference between being performative and what you said, like reacting to what the audience likes is, is a very dangerous thing to do as a comedian. I know that better than anybody who's ever hosted a podcast, but as a podcaster, as a, as a broadcaster as in any way, I know that too. So the, the challenge I would like to think would be, can you do a, can you have a smart show, but yeah. be yeah. interesting? I'm, I think the idea that you, that people don't think about that they're talking like you and I are talking right now in hopes that people will listen and like it. It's not just you and I having a conversation. And so there needs to be a certain care with which you do it. But if I just wanted to be entertaining, if I just wanted to get a reaction to get more people listening, then I think that's dangerous because the, the easiest things to do are just think of local news. If it bleeds, it leads. So like, do we really need to hear about every horrible thing that happened to each family or should we be looking at wider issues that impact entire communities and so on? So I think it's really dangerous to react to your audience that way. And I've never done that. I'd rather fail than do that. I'd rather yeah, have yeah. a much, a much smaller audience listening to a more thoughtful conversation than one that I, you know, just am always looking for the clicks and the likes and the subscriptions and, and all of that. I'm not saying that's what your friend does, but I'm saying that it's, it's <laughs> he kind of does. <laughs> well, it's dangerous. I think it's dangerous. And I, frankly, I think it's, it's wrong, but you know, that's how a lot of people make a lot of money. So. Yeah. I, I wonder if there's a line for me, you know, like I'll give I can't you a even sell swag. I'm feeling guilty about taking sponsors that are unethical. I, I don't like, this is where my moral baseline is like every say, why don't you sell merchandise? I'm like, well, because that's, I'm very much into sustainability and, and, and I'm also concerned about labor issues. So I don't want to sell a stand up a Pete Dominic t-shirt that was made by a Chinese boy and, and the raw materials are fucking coal and oil. Like, you know, yeah. I, I want to sell a sustainable t-shirt cup, mug bag, and you don't make a lot of money on that. You don't, because the overhead is it's higher if it's more sustainable or if there are, you know, if it was made with a certain human rights in mind. And so those ethical questions are ones that I struggle with, but they hold me back from making more money, but I'm okay with that. I'm okay right, with yeah. that. Like that's, I'm, I'm totally okay with that. My wife isn't. My wife sell an actual Chinese boy. <laughs> um, you bring she up said it before I went out. She's like, how much do you think we can get for Jinping? And <laughs> That's not racist because that's the last name of the conductor. I'm being nice. That guy's a monster. Xi Jinping. Yeah. How how early did you know you wanted to go into comedy? I was in middle school. Really? Yeah. That early. I yeah. mean, a lot of kids know that they're the class clown or they know how to, you know, get a get a rise out of somebody, get a laugh, or but that early. That, that you want and nobody was funnier than me. Oh, that's interesting. They, they got funnier than me as we got older in high school. My core group was a group because of, of, of our humor was sharper than the rest of the, the guys in my high school. But I was, we were all, we were all funny, but I was, you know, they, they caught up with me and, and passed me by, but I was the one who chose obviously to pursue it. And I did it publicly. Like I, I hosted the talent shows in high school doing, comedy doing impersonations uh of dana carvey's impersonations i was impersonating his impersonation <laughs> I my brother wrote all the material uh so i really like i was copying other people's work but you know i was in ninth grade and i i crushed in front of my whole high school and then i was the most popular kid and then there was this kind of he's the funny guy and so there was a certain amount of expectation and i was fine with that i'm not that person anymore gladly but i 
I, I mean, I can be, but I'd rather, I would absolutely, if we're, I'm at a dinner party, a barbecue, I would absolutely rather not talk at all and listen to you and everybody else make me laugh. Yeah. Cause I'm on a lot, but, but I'm also happy to, you know, because I don't want to be with a bunch of boring people either. So if I gotta, if I gotta add some spice, but I knew I wanted to do comedy and my dad told me, you know, find a job that you enjoy. That's all I ask of you and your brother. And I was like, can, is comedy a job? And he was like, yeah. And I was like, all right. And that was it. And I knew, and I, that's why I didn't drink. That's why I laser focus on being a stand up comedian. And I did two years of college and I went to a guidance counselor, like in college to about transferring. And she's like, well, what do you want to do? I was like, I want to be a stand up comedian. She's like, are you sure? I was like, yes. She's like, well, there's no college for that. I go, right. I'm thinking about moving to New York city and like studying acting while pursuing comedy. And she's like, well, it sounds like you want to know, you know what you want to do. And I said, yeah. And she, and she said, well, you can go now. Just go do that. <laughs> She's like, rarely do people come in here with a laser focus on a career like you have. So uh, this makes my life easy. Go do that. And my dad was the one who told me to talk to this woman. So she told my dad, she's like, He's, your, your son's got his mind made up. So I moved to New York City in July of 1995. And I walked into a comedy club two weeks later. And that's where it started. Wow. How, how did you, did you develop your craft just doing shows and bombing and succeeding and, you know, learning as you went? Or how, how did you do that? I mean, I rarely bombed for a whole set a lot of moments and sometimes like most of the set, but rarely because I, I had this kind of, not because it was funnier than anybody else, but I had like this survival skill and disability to whatever the situation was to get out of it and make it entertaining, make it funny. And that's the skill that I have. Like I'm not a prolific writer, but put me in any situation with any group of people and I'll find a way to make them laugh. It might not be with the highest integrity in terms of like what other, like, you know, these erudite, comedians who are prolific writers, the, the Gaffigans, the Seinfelds would see, but I don't, comedy is comedy. And I think anybody who can make an audience laugh is impressive to me. So. I've heard you say that in college, you had African-American friends who trained you in the art of, I think you called it black blacks. comedy. A lot of blacks in college. <laughs> I was in a black, a black gang. I don't know why I decided to be Trump. Uh, the blacks, you said African-American. I was like, no, the blacks, they were the blacks. And everyone's called them African-American. Not that her face, so I'm not going to say it behind their back. African-American. Yeah, um, yeah. And then uh, when you went to the city, there were comedians uh, with a Jewish background that trained you in Jewish comedy. I'm curious, what kind of understanding or sensitivities do you think are required to hear that and to speak to audiences of different backgrounds? Well, if I were to generalize, and that's what I'd be doing about black comedy and Jewish comedy. Is that answering your question? If I tell you like what that is or what are you saying? What am I, how did I pick up on it? I'm not. So here, here's another confession is that when I heard you talk about that, what I immediately thought of before I even, you even talked about Jewish comedy was uh, because you talked about African-American friends that you had in college and then, you know, black audiences. And I was thinking that is kind of general, but if you think about it, a lot of, the greatest comedians of all time were African-American comedians and Jewish comedians. So I'm wondering, is there something to American black culture or American Jewish culture that there's some ingredients in there yes, that yes. lead to humor? Yeah. It's pain and suffering. <laughs> That's actually, that makes so much sense. Yeah, in Jewish comedians, especially will, will tell you that. Comedy doesn't come from one place, but it definitely comes from pain and suffering. I mean, it doesn't, most pain and suffering doesn't turn into comedy, but people who are of comic minds and who are also 
in pain and suffering deal with the pain and suffering, discrimination, torture, marginalization, whatever you want to call it, whoever we're talking about, Jews in Europe or wherever at any time. And so comedy is a natural humor is a natural kind of vein for people who are in pain and suffering, you know, and, and so let's just, but let's forget about for a second, people who are discriminated against, like if you are a white straight male, I think sometimes the right misunderstands this. And I think sometimes liberals don't explain it well, but white straight males suffer horribly and many different types of ways that are in many ways similar the, to those who are discriminated against because of their you know, ethnicity, gender, sexual orientation, religion. So it's not to say that we don't, we do. White straight males suffer and that's where a lot of the comedy comes from them. That was never my source of comedy. My source of comedy is more about curiosity and and kind of my journey and, and so on. It's it's autobiographical. It's not really observational. But the 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 humor that comes from suffering and from pain is really interesting to talk about, to think about. But it's just obviously more concentrated in marginalized communities. So if you're a member of, you know, if you're a black person, if you're a Jewish person, if you're a gay person, if you're a woman, if you're Muslim, you know, there's a lot there. There's a lot to mine for comedy. Right. And turning pain into laughter is seen as very highly, it's difficult. And so it's highly respected in humor circles. Yeah. I'm curious about that time between school, when you talk to the guidance counselor and when you really started to land some, some big jobs, whether it was when you started headlining clubs or the warm up gigs you did for Colbert, the daily show, what were those years like in the mid to late nineties, early two thousands? Well, my money job was personal training. So that was a big part of my life. I spent seven years, the first couple of years living in New York. I went to acting school and I worked at a, at this gym, Equinox in New York City, when it was still family run, one of the first ones in a, as, as, at the front desk. And then they basically recruited me to be a, a trainer because my personality, you know, and I was always a, I was a college athlete, you know, it, it made sense. And so to support myself and live in Manhattan, which is super expensive, I was a personal trainer. You're either a bartender, waiter, or a personal trainer. If you were, you know, a struggling artist, I think those are one of the, those are who are temp, but who wants to be a temp in an office. And so during that time I made a living as a personal trainer, but the more my comedy picked up and the more and more gigs, I slowly, you know, weaned myself off personal training. But when I fully quit, I guess was when I started doing, ah, Jesus, I went kind of back and forth because there were leaner months, really. I mean, that's that's show business for you in general. But I, I guess my big break was when I got involved in the college circuit because colleges pay a lot of money to no, no-name comedians to come to their campus and rule bumfuck. And uh, I did tons of those and made tons of money. I performed at over 400 colleges and universities across the country in my early 20s. And wow. I performed, they booked me because I was in my early 20s. Oh, wow. You age out of the market. Like it's harder for guys my age now to do college gigs for obvious reasons. Just don't relate to them. No, really? Yeah. I mean, I can still do it, but I don't, I don't, I don't like to do it as much because they're younger and I don't really want to talk about what they laugh at. Oh, I don't want to talk about drinking and sex and, and like social media um, stuff that they're experiencing. Like, I don't really love what they're, you know, what they're going through. I already went through that. I don't really want to go back like for comedy, mm, you know, right, like, right, right. like not really my thing. I do like giving talks at colleges. I like talking to young people, which is what I'm doing more of now about a number of different issues from sustainability to anti-racism to 
domestic abuse and other things. I mean, these are all issues I, I like to talk about. So I prefer doing that now with these young kids. They're so young now. I'm 45 and they're in their, you know, early 20s. So it's just, there's a real disconnect. So I try to, I try to stay connected to every different type of community and demographic in, in different ways and keep their concerns in, in my mind. So I don't become this compartmentalized, bitter old white guy, but, <laughs> but my break was colleges. And then it went on to, I got work as an audience warm-up comedian in horrible TV shows that ended up in the best TV shows. I became the best, one of the best known, uh, best respected, one of the top three warm-up comedians in New York City for years. And it was really, really good money. And then I got, you know, around, there was an overlap with that in SiriusXM. When I got hired at SiriusXM at the comedy channels, that was it. I knew I wanted to navigate that company and work at that company. I knew I wanted to host my own show and work for a major media company and get all the benefits, mainly salary and access that came with it. And I did it. I navigated, uh, I went from a one hour a day show on the comedy channel, basically DJing comedy clips to hosting Pulitzer Prize winning journalists and, you know, senators and academics and doctors and you name it for three hours a day, five days a week for 14 years. Now, I heard you say at one point that you had pitched Sirius XM to do a whole channel. To what extent were you able to execute that idea? And if you could, do you think you could do it independently? And what, if so, what would that look like? Well, I, I executed it perfectly. I did it. I went into the president of Sirius XM. And I said, we should do a channel. That's like the daily show for the radio. That's like public interest with a sense of humor like NPR with a personality. And he's like, it was such a good pitch. Um, and I came in also in with a budget idea, a way to finance it. Cause they were getting rid of this other channel at that time that had a huge budget. I was like, we take the money from there and you can more than pay for this idea. He said, yes, done. And then I went back with his deputy, if you will, and he created it. But then it quickly got polluted with everybody's pet ideas, show personality. And then it, it, it was never even launched as what it was supposed to be. And it was supposed to be comedians hosting important conversations. And that was it. It was a simple premise. And it, it started with me and John Fugel saying, and they gave Dean Obidala a once a week show. And then they just made it this potpourri miscellaneous channel and it lost its brand. But we were there for four years and definitely garnered a, an amazing audience of human beings that have many of which have come with me to the podcast. How did you, so the way you landed that Colbert job prior, prior to XM, uh, was it XM or Sirius? Uh, I started at Sirius and then they merged okay. in 2010 uh, and became Sirius XM. And that's when I started on the POTUS channel where I was for about three years. And that's when I got really into DC politics and CNN hired me at that time. And I really became involved like a DC, I was a definitely like a DC media person, even though I kind of, I lived in New York, but I worked at the Atlanta, DC and New York bureaus of CNN, as well as the New York and DC bureaus of, of Sirius XM. So I had kind of one foot in Washington and political media, one foot in entertainment and uh, working at Comedy Central. So it's been a hard career and brand to, uh, or personality to kind of figure out who Pete Dominic is and what he does, but I don't really give a shit about that because I've loved every minute of it. Yeah, no, I think that's where I first started listening to you when you had that show on POTUS. Uh, so that, what was that, like 2009, 2010? That was there? 2010, I think. Yeah. Yep. It was good. I, at first I was like, a comedian on POTUS? What, what are they doing? And but yeah, it, A lot of people were very upset at first. It was shocking. They're like, what is this? What are you doing? You're destroying the channel. But I won them over. 
which is weird. No. Because, well, why did they stay listening? I could see why people would be. No, no, I can't. I, I was curious. I wasn't upset. I was curious. I'm like, well, oh, people, I, no, people were upset because it's upsetting when when some, when they change the flavor of your favorite ketchup or soda or channel. It's upsetting. Why are you changing it? I liked it. Totally normal reaction to me. And I went in understanding that. And I literally said, I don't blame you for not liking what I'm doing, but I'm begging you to give me a chance. I'm begging you because my burden in life is that I need everybody to like me and I will find a way to make you like me. And I did not everybody, but you know, I want a lot of people over, obviously. I'm still trying to think of a different flavor of ketchup, but like, yeah, it's a like terrible, st- terrible example. Like I guess if they took <laughs> strawberry ketchup, like what are we talking about? I, I don't know. It's terrible. As I said it, I was like, wow, what a shit <laughs> example. I'm so glad that you called me on it. There's so uh, many different ways I could have gone. So during your run there, your show evolved, your role evolved. Were there certain principles that, you were really clear on from the outset that you've stuck to even to this day with the podcast. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Are you going to tell us what they were? <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to think about what they are with them. No, let's just sit here and have an awkward pause. Yeah. Yeah, there are. Next question. How about you? You know, I keep in really, I, I take very good care of, being thinking about diversity specifically with women and people of color. I think about LGBT stuff, but not maybe as much as other people do or trans, you know, not, not because it's not, it's just not always as much on my radar. And I I think there's fewer, frankly, gay people, definitely fewer trans people. We talk about trans uh, issues as if they're everywhere. There really aren't that many trans people and it's been elevated to this culture war thing by the right. And to some extent by the, the movement, the human rights movement that that is, but it's just like, not, I feel like it gets, it's like cancel culture. It's like, yeah, there's a thing there, but it doesn't deserve this amount of conversation on a national platform. And, and since I know so little about it, so I'm digging myself a hole with the fact that it's a blind spot for me, but I also am just, I did so much in that space too, in all those spaces, especially with don't ask, don't tell. I mean, I covered it as much as any national media outlet uh, did probably more. And so I think a lot about those things. I think a lot about healthcare. I think a lot about the environment, but the rules I don't, you know, I, I, I never had conspiracy theories. I didn't give them a platform. So I, I don't, you know, there are not two sides to every issue. So I didn't debate issues that there weren't two sides of. And I think those issues are pretty, uh, pretty obvious to me. So I don't invite racists and sexist people on my show that are overtly in my, because they'll be great entertainment value for me to argue because they would be. People love when I would get them as callers. But so I, those, that's one of the rules. The other rule is trying to treat everybody the exact same way. Whether I work with you or I've just met you, like treating people exactly this, as much. Because I've been in a lot of rooms with a lot of, you know, high value people by our culture standard, but they don't impress me more than the people who we don't consider as high value A schizophrenic homeless black guy on the street of New York gave me like the most wisdom I'd gotten in one hour in years. And I talked to the the most respected intellectuals in the world, but that guy's experience was really valuable to me. So I try to treat people similarly. And I try to keep in in mind the people who are more vulnerable, the the, whose category of of life I don't belong to, I guess. And then I don't, I don't like to make money from, in certain ways, put it that way. I could talk more about that, but it's just like taking certain gigs and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Earlier in my career, like I worked for a lot of big corporations, but now I, I would have a harder time with that. Do you find people treat you differently if they don't, 
one of the things that you just said is treating people the same, no matter who they are. I'm sure that you find yourself in certain situations where people know, you know, you're a yeah. stand-up comedian and you got, uh, you had a radio gig and now you have this whole community and this podcast thing. And it's kind of like, you know, they treat you a certain way because of, yeah, I know that. that. Very sensitive to that. And I notice it when people do it right away. It happened all the time at Sirius because people would walk in and they make a beeline for me. I'm the host of the show. Yeah. Whoever the guest was, a publicist, whoever it was. And I would be like, hey, did you say hi to my producers? Like, did you say there's other people in the room? Right. Like, why aren't you saying hi to them? And I would always notice that. And I would always notice when they would treat the women differently than than the men and, and things like that. And so I was always sensitive to that because I all I was obviously everybody is subjected to that. I mean, that happened to me on the way up. I, comedians didn't even look at me. The guys that I respected and revered, they didn't make eye contact with me and they hazed you. I mean, it really is a brutal hazing process in, in comedy. It's brutal. I mean, they, they try veteran comedians try to get you to quit in a way. It's like this, it's like hamsters eating their young. It's like, I'm, I'm going to save you by forcing you out of this horrible business. But I didn't, I didn't feel the need to do that to younger comedians. Cause I didn't like when people did that to me. I get it. It's funny, but I didn't like that. I don't understand like why. Cause comedy is the only thing that mattered. Humor. It doesn't matter how mean it is. Huh? By the way, when you're talking about black comedy, that's, that's a rule there too. Is it like a competitive thing or what, like. It's comedy. It's just a joke. It's the joke is the thing. Oh. So like if you're hanging out with a bunch of black guys and there's a bunch of funny black guys, they will snap on each other and slam each other. And, and, but in the most brutal possible way. Like if you have a vein that bulges out of your forehead, they'll talk about it for a, an hour. If your nostrils flare too much, if you have a crooked tooth, you are jagged tooth, you get a nickname. And it's like, it's so brutal, um, but it's hilarious because it's true. This guy is fat. This guy is ugly. This guy is whatever it is, whatever it is. Your breath is so bad. It does not matter as long as it's funny. And that's, the truth is funny. So I came to my first get together, the Thursday night get togethers that you do, which by the way, members only, it is elitist because we all pay a lot of money to be part of the community. <laughs> no, it's, not. it's like a country club. I'm totally. it's like, yeah, it's, it's just like a country. You have to dress. I think it's one of my rules, but you have to dress up. No, <laughs> no. First thing I, so I showed up for my first like little Thursday night get together and yeah. it was the, the, po the great ponytail. <laughs> I went right for it. Yeah. Here comes a child. Oh, cool. Let's interview. Can we interview the child? Uh, sure. <laughs> Is this Ava or? It's Julia. Julia. I just got to turn you up. I hope that doesn't. That's all right. Yeah, I'm being in a, interviewed on a podcast right now. That's Corey. Say hi, Corey. That's hi. Julia. Hi, Julia. How you doing? Good, how are you? Good, good. Do you guys have a day off from school today? My kids, my kids do. No, I just, I just ended school early. Yeah. yeah. Why are you here? I want to show you something. Come here. You, you want to show? I'm doing an interview right now. No. Okay, but now, <laughs> is it what is it? A funny thing or? A, no, I played a song on piano a little bit. Oh, you played a song on piano and you want to show me? Yeah. All right. Well, as soon as I'm done here, I'll come see you. I can't wait. Okay, All right. Yeah, she's really a budding pianist. That's cool. She's not. She had. She's got a, an app on her. She wants to. My that girl right there wants to be a model. Okay. She has been nagging me to get her a modeling agent for th literally three years. And I have no, it's hard because I have no interest in helping her become a model. I think it's a terrible thing to me. Modeling as a career, as an industry would be like her being like, listen, I want to deal drugs. I'm like, no, I'm not encouraging you. I think that's a terrible career. I'm sorry. It's not like 
acting or, or, or even some other career where there's no meritocracy and a lot of sexual assault. It's modeling. There's no work. It's body image. It's like read anything about it. It's horrible. So it's been a weird thing because I always like I'll support you no matter what you want to do. Oh, not that. Right. Right. So it's like the objectifying of the, the bodies and the. Is that it's what just it is? weird. Imagine the idea that your way to earn a living, to make money is, is to have to look a certain way. I think that that is a poison to one's soul. It's, there's nothing to do with the reality of the human experience, or at least it shouldn't. And so also there's, you know, there's no work there and it's all scams and body image disorder. So if anybody listening thinks I'm, you know, not being a good parent by supporting that, but it's also not a job like you, you're paying for that experience. There's no money to be made. You keep going out on these auditions, these castings. And so I'm like, when you're 18, you can do whatever you want, but I'm not driving you to a modeling casting or, a, you know, yeah. yeah we, and if someone comes up to you and says, you should be a model and I want to pay you to, to model in this catalog, go ahead. I wouldn't say no, but yeah. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not driving you to the uh, body image disorder factory. Thank you. <laughs> We did, uh, we had, Savannah was going to auditions, not modeling per se. Some of them were just modeling. It was, you know, for a, they don't, I guess they don't do Sears catalogs anymore, but something along those, JCPenney catalog. Uh, but it's a full-time job for the whole family. Yeah, I have no interest in that. Yeah, especially being, what, 45 minutes out of the city or an hour yeah, out of the city? I don't want to, I'm not supporting your job, your career. Not yeah. now, you're too young. I don't like that. I'd love to have a thoughtful debate with other parents about that. Like, you're not to have a career. Yeah. You're to have a childhood. Like that's yeah, where right. I think that's where I'm at. Like, you know, you need to have all these crazy experiences and opportunities. And, and I mean, I'm sure I could see a play. I'm sure there's plenty of arguments and so on, but I just, I, the idea of working, you're going to work the rest of your life. How about you don't need to quote be in, in that type of mode, atmosphere, responsibility, earning money. I think it's not good. It's generally not good. Yeah. Uh, no, we had uh, a couple of her coaches, encouraged us and she was really into it. So we were being supportive and she ended up booking a Super Bowl spot, which was, which was fun. And she made a ton of money that was helpful, you know, later on in her childhood and young adulthood. So, uh, but as soon as we felt like we were dragging her to the auditions, we're like, yeah, oh, this is done. You guys sound like <laughs> terrible parents to me. We're awful. We are absolutely awful. <laughs> no, that's awesome. That's great. If she had a good experience, that's awesome. Yeah. I mean, the truth is, yeah, I, I can't drive in. You know, I live in the suburbs of New York City. It costs $16 to go across the bridge. Yeah. $40 to park. I have an electric car, but it's not always on gas. I mean, like the point is I'm spending 50 bucks and three hours, which is also a loss of time for me. I, I mean, I'm in the shed doing, I can't do it. I can't, can't possibly support that dream. Yeah. With my time and money. I'm sorry, but that's, uh, been a constant argument with her. Yeah. I mean, she's also not pretty enough. I tell her that. <laughs> I didn't see that coming. She's lovely for those who that's not that good. Look, what are you going to model for? Are you trying to be a future ET? Your eyes are too far apart. You're not going to make it study. 
<laughs> Work on your personality and humor. That I do say to my daughters, like when they were young, my daughters are, are both beautiful, I think, objectively speaking. And when they were really young and my, the one you just met, it's blue eyes and, and brown hair and, and people would see that and they'd be like, oh, her eyes are beautiful. And she would get so used to that compliment that she would expect it, which I don't think is good. And and so I would start kind of pushing back. And they're like, oh, she's so beautiful. This is common for people to say well-intentioned to strangers about their children, especially girls, uh, which I don't love again. But nonetheless, uh, I would always say, yeah, beauty is her ninth best quality. <laughs> and, and I say to them, I say, listen, you're, it's great that you have a pretty face and a great body. Good for you. But you didn't earn that. You got lucky and it might get you in a room. It might get you in a room, but it's your personality, your humor, your grit that will keep you in the room. So focus on the things that you can change, not the things that you can't change, which are generally speaking, the way that you look, you know, within reason. So that's always what I've thought about. And I've also been really cognizant because of girls. And I've read a lot about, you know, raising confident girls. And I, I think a lot about this and going back to the show, I've gotten mentors who are the the most brilliant feminists of our time, that they're my mentors. And so they've taught me a lot and they've really impacted my role as a, as a father to, to daughters. How do you get the guests that you do? Is it just something that, where you'll read a great article and reach out to the writer yep. of the article or? Sure. I have that happening today. I'm going to be interviewing a guy who I never interviewed, but I just read his article. Uh, his name is Jared Holt and he's an expert on extremism. And uh, I read his article yesterday and I said, Hey man, I'd love to interview you for my podcast. And at this point, my, you know, I've been, been around Corey doing this for 40, for, for I'm 45 for, you know, 15 years. And so usually people say yes, because they just Google me and they see that, you know, who I am and what I've done and who I've interviewed. And they, they say, yeah, sure. I'd love to be interviewed by a guy who's interviewed these people who I respect. So at this point, my reputation goes along with the invitation. The Google search usually comes up with something that makes them say, yes, I would imagine if they don't already know, you know, familiar with my work in this case, I, this guy may or may not be, but then again, over, you know, almost 15 years, three hours a day, three guests a day, at least sometimes more, many of which became repetitive guests. So like I, I had those established relationships with those people and almost all of them say yes to me. That's awesome. Yeah, it is awesome. And it's my currency because it's not my brain. It's not my knowledge or insight or arguments really that keep people. I'm always happy to make them, but it's not why people listen to me. It never has been. It's the smart people I'm, I'm interviewing, which is what I do. So that's my brand. Yeah, it's really something that the quality of guests that you have. I've always been curious about a couple things on that note. One is, did you ever have a guest on that within a couple minutes you were like, this person is a fucking asshole. I can't wait to be done with this thing. I will never have them back. Yeah, yeah. But less of that and more of this person's not a great communicator and I can barely listen to this person. It's more likely that they're boring or they're um and and there's a lot of that. And that was more likely in live radio. Cause I can I if I do every once in a while get one of those people to podcast, I actually, Corey, will spend an hour editing it. Oh, because I, 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 yeah, and I, I deserve a, I deserve a lot more credit uh, <laughs> for editing those ums out of those, and then I generally probably won't have those people back on, unfortunately, because I, I'd love to be able to like, listen, you got to stop, you got to listen to that, you can't, you can't do that on a, on a record, on an interview, but, so yeah, it's more likely that the guest would be boring or a bad communicator than they would be an asshole. I wouldn't generally, like I said earlier, I generally know not to book certain people. It's happened, but it's very rare that someone's like a jerk. So my father is sometimes my co-host. 
and and when you edit all of the ums and the bodily noises as an old Jewish man that he makes, he sounds brilliant. I make that old Jewish man sound brilliant. I love that. Yeah, my dad, my parents come on with me too. And it's, it's, I think it's, I think it's interesting. It's always interesting and entertaining to listen to a grown human talk to their grown parent. Like I could listen to anybody talk to their parents. I find it fascinating and people love, I mean, Granted, my dad, my, both my parents are really funny. So when they come on my podcast, people are like, that's the best. I'm like, really? I have the smartest people in the world. And my parents are your favorite guy. I love it. I could listen to your parents, Pete, uh, and you talk for hours. So I'm glad you said that because, you know, we've had some really impressive people. Just even though it's a, a young show, we, you know, I was going to tell you about the um, we interviewed Dr. Errol Southers, one of the leading experts on domestic terrorism and violent extremism. And yet the feedback that I get was about, you know, having more Ronnie, having more of my father on. Yeah. And occasionally when he's on, one of the reasons I try to limit it is because inevitably Phyllis, my mother walks into the room just randomly, like completely arbitrarily, you know, and she doesn't care that we're doing this thing and we have this impressive world renowned person on Ronnie. I have the chicken in the oven. When are you going to be done? <laughs> so, that is, I, you got to give me if, if that if that's a real clip. I'll play it on my show. That's hilarious. There is a real clip. So I've had so many moments like that, like just awkward, awful, cringe moments while I was live on this or on that over the, over the years. I haven't had that. There, people are so much more forgiving now in virtual yeah. world but it was a lot different before when you were broadcasting from home and you don't really want people to know, or, you know, you know, hotel or something like that. And, Oh God, those were the, those were the most stressful days of my life when I was on the road at Sirius and worried about my remote setup was going to work. You know, I'd be, I'm always trying to make more money doing gigs, going on the road and got to bring my equipment with me. And is this hotel going to work? And Oh God. And we, you know, come right down to the wire sometimes before we go live. And sometimes I didn't make it. Sometimes I didn't make it on. And oh, it was brutal. Cause I was, it was such a great job. I'd always worried. Oh my God, I'm going to be in so much trouble, but I never got trouble for any of that. Yeah, no, it was one of our first episodes that we did. My dad and I were retelling the story about how when I became a Christian. And uh, yeah, Phyllis just kind of moseys on into the little office that he had. And Is your dad, is that, is that a problem for your family that you converted? It's usually problematic in Jewish. Oh, it was a, it was a big deal. Yeah, yeah, it was a big deal. He, uh, he won't say it this way, but I, I know that he gave serious thought to what's called sitting Shiva, which is what... Um, My son is dead. Yeah. Yeah. So, but you know how I hear you talk about that time a year and a half ago when you lost your favorite gig ever and how it opened certain doors that were completely unexpected. Like I hear the way that you talk about your relationship with Valerie at that time mm. and that there's a richness and a depth that was uncovered because of the struggle that you were going through at that time. So uh, similarly, when I became a Christian, it was the least convenient thing I could ever do. I could have gone home and told them I was a Buddhist. I could have told them I was gay. I could have told them any number of other things that would have been embraced and celebrated, but telling them I was a Christian being, you probably know this if you have Jewish friends, especially growing up in the Northeast, because a lot of us are first, maybe second generation Jews. So half of our family died in the Holocaust. The other half of our family had our houses burned down and our young women raped by Cossacks, especially during Easter time coming through so, and these were all men wearing crosses on their chest. So when a Jew, especially an observant Jew goes home and says, I'm a Christian now, that image flashes into their brain and then take it to the contemporary. My parents are pretty liberal politically. 
they, <laughs> my mother's first reaction when she heard was, Ronnie Duhast, our son's a born again Republican. Like, you know, so immediately she made that connection of yeah. like, even worse than Christian, he's a Republican. Well, yeah, no, the only thing a Jewish family worries more about their uh, their son uh, converting to is is to Trumpism uh, because they're Nazis, which is not true. There's actually a, a lot. Sadly, there's a lot of Jewish people who actually support Trump. And I think that has a lot to do with Israel stuff. But none, you know, it's still I know exactly what you're saying. And I, most of my friends are actually Jewish and most of my close friends are. And for a long time the vast majority of my friends were because between comedy and, and personal training, a lot of my clients were Jewish. I lived in the Upper West Side of Manhattan, which is a very uh, Jewish neighborhood. So I didn't know any Jewish people until I went to college and then not well. It was really until New York City where I became very close and intimate. So I talk about my college experience being introduced to so much diversity, mainly, you know, becoming very intimate with a lot of black men and women, including, you know, as roommates and, and then you know, living with them in dorms. So that was like this crash course in like black culture. I'd always had black people, like I said, in my family and around me, but never like that close to me and being really close personal friendships and, and relationships with. But then when I moved to New York City, I had a similar kind of experience with gay people and with Jewish people and with other ethnicities as well, but mainly with those. And so I learned, you know, and I, I just, most of my close friends are Jewish and I love progressive Jewish or even secular Jewish culture, I, I gravitate towards them, as a matter of fact. It might be because of uh, you said your dad was Italian is Italian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I find that uh, we grew up next door to Italians and, and Ida Manuni was the one who raised us because Phyllis had to go to work right away. So mm. I, I, I find that our families, there's a not just superficial, but very fundamental similarities to our families. Yes and no. I mean, you can always talk about Jewish people and Italian people, but the vast majority of Italian people don't like Jewish people. And my dad, <laughs> never heard my dad, you know, speak well of Jewish people. To be fair, there weren't any. Like, I never heard him say anything. But as I got older and a lot of my Jewish friends, my dad would lay out and still does some pretty typical bigoted, you know, type stereotypes about Jewish people, which I think is hilarious to me at this point. It's just so preposterous. But uh, but no, I'm attracted to Jewish people because there's a part of the religion that at its core teaches you to question everything. And rabbinical scholars will actually debate the Torah, whereas with Christianity, which you somehow evolved to, it's don't question anything. And I'm shorthanding it, obviously. But but so I think that even secular Jews have this cultural idea, uh, cultural quality of curiosity and a pursuit of education, which, of course, is more likely why they're more likely affluent uh, because of education and, and, and the value that that is and the access that obviously they have to it. But I've always thought that my Jewish friends are a lot more. Also, the men are more less masculine and more kind of, you know, mensch, menschy and and thoughtful and sensitive. Like the Jewish men in my life are happen to be the most kind of generally speaking, empathic, emotional, sensitive men. You know, it's interesting. I, I wanted to push back on you made a little bit of a generalization about uh, Christian people, but my experience only underscores your point in that there are a lot of Bible studies I've been a part of where I did the thing that comes very naturally to my family and my upbringing and my Jewish roots, which is like, wait a second, you're saying that this set of verses says this. I'm seeing something really different here. You know, I've talked a couple of times about uh, there's one chapter in, in the old the Torah, Leviticus, and it, taught, it goes into pretty explicit description about 
the imperative is with regard to uh, people outside of the nation or immigrants, as we would think of them. And this guy was talking about pretty much anti-immigration policies. And I'm like, now, wait a second. We got to read the end of the chapter because it's pretty much the opposite of what you're talking about. So I think I'm coming across like, you know, thoughtful and concerned and let's talk about this. But I like clearly I was coming across like just an obnoxious asshole because I was. No, I disagree with that. How are you an obnoxious asshole by by question? Well, you would say so, but the church, like the Bible, they kicked me out of the Bible study. They don't want me to rant like, you know, that's the whole thing. That's (laughs) that's part of the doctrine really is. There is only one God. I mean, Islam is similar in in that way as well. There is only one true God, one true prophet. That's most of Christianity. It's most of Islam. And it's not. It is with Judaism and it's more fundamental, obvious. I I think that's fair to say, but a lot of the secular or even more moderate and and even conservative Jews, they debate the Torah. They're allowed, they're encouraged to debate the interpretation of the religious writings and, and you're not in Christianity. And when you do, you're seen as a problem. It's like Scientology as well. It's stop asking questions, stop challenging the official doctrine. And what that does for those people who aren't religious, it, it culturally dumbs you down by making you not be curious. I've always thought intellectual curiosity for me is the kind of curiosity that I most respect. A good question is what impresses me more than a good answer. And so if you're not encouraged to do that, then you don't encourage your kids to do that. One of the worst parenting things I hear, and we, you know, I, I really don't do it. Maybe I've done this like once or twice, but I so reject it. It's a lazy thing, but it's also cultural. It's when your kid asks you why they can or can't do something because I'm your father. And I said, so it's just authoritarian <laughs> bullshit. It's like, they're asking you a question. I had enough. Stop asking me that question. I will never say that. If you ask me that question 50 times and, and you're a young person, fine. I encourage that. And I think that's encouraged in certain cultures and religions and discouraged in others. So since we're talking about it, you're uh, secular agnostic. Maybe are you, would you say you're atheist or no? Okay, so at the very least agnostic, you know, but definitely a truth seeker. But you're also you're strongly disposed to genuine goodness and truth to becoming a better person, helping the world become a better place. What is it that helps you understand, number one, what is universally good? And number two, what is it in you that pulls you in that direction? Uh, It's a great question. And and I think anybody should be able to answer that at some point in their life. And it's just a great question for, for conversation. And I, I, I really value the opportunity to answer it. So if I were to give you like a, a short answer that people could relate to, that's not kind of convoluted and, and, and interpreted by me, I would just tell them to look up the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And I, I'm with that. I believe in the Universal Declaration Declaration of Human Rights, which has to do with human rights. And it's like a constitution for the world. Everyone is entitled in full equality to a fair and public hearing by an independent and impartial tribunal. No one shall be subjected to arbitrary arrest, detention, or exile. If you read the UN Declaration of Human Rights, you will generally know what I think. So what I think is I believe in human rights and how they are defined by the UN Declaration of Human Rights, which is some a document that's been around, I think, post-World War II, 70 years or so. And then more personally, 
And one of the problems I have with religion and with, frankly, with religious people, and I'll, you know, throw this back to you to answer it, is this idea that you are in any way making choices or living your life because of a judgment of a higher power or because of anything to do with an afterlife. I, because I don't believe in any kind of higher power or afterlife, that seems like a waste of time to me. And it also, I question it because for me, it's not, it's not really what other people think of me, anybody. It's what I think of myself. What have I done today to improve the world or somebody else's life? Because that brings me a sense of purpose and, and, a, and just a good feeling to be a good person. And I, every day, screw up with my family or with a stranger. Maybe I'm short or, or rude in some way or another. I've made it, often I just make jokes that are insensitive and don't realize it. But I once made a joke of a woman for having a peanut butter and jelly sandwich at work at Sirius XM. She didn't talk to me for like five years. I didn't, I didn't realize that uh, she was offended by it. She was, and I, I should have been more thoughtful. But, but um, so, yeah, I, I, the idea of like, I want to live in this moment for this moment, not for the afterlife. I'm not, not stealing, not cheating because of God's judgment. I'm doing that because of my judgment, because of who I am when I look in, in the mirror. So I think I have a, the same moral standard as any religious person and often a better moral standard than many religious people, because I think that because of my feeling about the UN Declaration of Human Rights, I don't put people in categories of gender or color or anything like that, where religion often does that. I mean, Saudi Arabia yesterday, they, this woman got let out of jail because Joe Biden got elected in Saudi Arabia. I was like, we probably killed up this guy. She was a, <laughs> a, a protester. Her, her movement was to allow women to drive yeah. and not yeah. have guardianship. I mean, I'm over here teaching my daughter to drive at 16. You can't do that in Saudi Arabia. And that's because of their Sunni brand of Islam and they're just authoritarian, you know, Royal family. But so that's one example, the Catholic church, you can't be a leader in the Catholic church as a, as a woman, as a girl, Christian, most evangelical Christians, maybe not you, but most are not for equal rights for, for women. They're not period. That's I'm not, obviously I don't think it's okay, but that's what their religion teaches them. That's what a lot of people believe. And, and so I think religion has a lot of strong, you know, can, can help you and guide you and your moral beliefs, but I also think it can poison them. And, and I don't, I don't see the need for it and uh, to be a good person. And I, I think the idea that someone you're doing something because anybody here or in the spiritual realm is judging you is, is it's not a good, it's not a good motivation. I don't think I, I, I'm suspicious of that motivation. Yeah. That's interesting. If that's your understanding and, and it's fair to have that understanding because it's a, a pretty prevalent view, even if you draw that out into a more nuanced interpretation of what religions will purport or spew. But I don't think that represents my beliefs. You know, like having some would dismissively call it the flying spaghetti monster in the sky, you know, but e even if you think of it more generally as the higher power, as my motive uh, that will judge me. And if I don't do what this higher power says is good, that I won't get into some mystical otherworldly place called heaven. Right. Yeah. That, that, that's, those aren't my beliefs. 
So I have questions for you, but I, I feel compelled to answer you in a way. Well, I'll ask you a specific question about what I just said. It might okay. be easier if you want. What is your motivation? What is it? The only, the only good thing that I can ever see about religion is the community that it creates of people. I think that's great. But other yeah. than that, I think that there can be so much confusion and frustration and pain and a constant search. And the only other thing I'd add is I'm sitting here watching the birds on my bird feeder. I, my other core belief, I don't, I don't, because I'm a human being, I can't really act this way because I, I do eat animals, but is to do as little harm as possible. I'm very interested in the way, you know, the behavior of tribal people in terms of sustainability and, 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 and not using more than they need and material wealth and so on. So, but, but my point is I look around at the birds right now my yard is covered in snow. There's no food. And so my bird feeder and I did that. They're, they're eating because I fed them. That makes me feel good. But I also don't want to kill any insects. So there's a lot of like these kind of Buddhist tendencies, like the idea that we're all equal, all living things, plants and all living things are equal. I'm not better than, and there's a hierarchy that certainly comes with religion. It's man-made in my opinion, obviously I say, obviously that may have sounded condescending to you, but it's man-made. And so it, it has a, a human centric outlook. I don't think that. I think that's ego. When I look at these birds, I'm like, I'm no better than that fucking bird right there. Yeah. I don't deserve anything more than that bird. And I might come back as that bird. No. (laughs) So one, one distinction I should make is that I'm less religiously driven than theologically driven. When I say theology, where I think you and I could probably find common ground is that it's just the possibility of a God inside of a philosophical conversation. So I had existential questions all my life, but it came to a head in my late 20s where I began to focus on, I, I needed to just have a certain primary set of questions that I really just needed to, even if I couldn't find the crystallized answer to, I needed to find something cohesive and coherent enough to where I could begin to shape basic tenets of my life around. So mm-hmm. one of those conclusions I made was I, I wouldn't even say whether there's quote unquote a God, which I do believe that there's a God, but I needed to at least answer a philosophical question. Is this a closed universe within which nothing can enter in? Or is it an open universe where there's a possibility that something even beyond the universe exists? You know, And I came to the open universe conclusion. Not only that, I believe that there was a coherent, cohesive set of reasons to believe that there was if not an actual creator character God, that at the very least, that there was some sort of a force that was a initiating force, right? Um, But also because I believed in an open universe, if there was this force uh, that was so great that it could initiate this whole thing, like think of it this way, like if there was a big bang, which I believe there was, could have there been some other force that was the big banger, right? I'm oversimplifying extremely here, but I'm just talking philosophically kind of where I landed. What does any of that have to do with religion? Here's where it has to do. Sorry, I'm talking like, you know, macro, but micro, here's what it has to do. Number one, and I'm skipping a lot of steps here, but number one, I do believe that there's a creator of the universe. Number two, I believe that the universe is out of whack a little bit. In religion, they might call that sin. Uh, But I do think that the universe is not this perfect place. But I also believe that because I believe in a creator God, I believe that there's this redemption project, that whatever's wrong in the world, that there's this, you know, human beings have an opportunity to participate in redeeming 
redeeming the earth, redeeming creation. And I get to be a part of that. I'm a part of the problem because like you, I'll yell at my wife. I'll, you know, whatever, kick the dog. I don't kick the dog, but you know what I mean? Like I'll, I'll fall short in all kinds of ways every day. So I'm a part of that problem. And there's like, there are ripple effects that emanate from every time that I mess up, but I'm also part of the solution by having this conversation with you, by having a conversation among, this might be making too much of it, but you and I disagree on certain things. And if you knew, I would never try to get into an argument or a debate about something that I don't know a ton about. Oh, I do for a living. (laughs) I should probably pretend to have more informed opinions than I actually do. But one, one that I do have a very informed opinion about is, is raising the minimum wage. So you and I probably, we could probably, we, we probably disagree where we're at right now, but I bet we could have a really productive conversation. And the fact that you and I have been talking for what an hour, hour and a half now, despite some fundamental differences about religion, about the existence of God. And the fact that this is good. I I think this is good. And it's not even good. Like as an evangelical, you might think, well, it's good because he wants to, you know, get me to say a magic prayer and get me to come to church. Yeah, no, I'm agenda free with this conversation. I know that's, that's the cool parts. My, my agenda is I get to hang out with a really cool guy, (laughs) you know, like a big, it's a big honor for you. There's, there can be no doubt. And um, (laughs) you're um, like, you're welcome. (laughs) All right, Pete Dominic, before we go, how can we find stand up with Pete Dominic and tell us more about give well. Uh, Stand Up with Pete Dominic is sold in every grocery store and every municipality. You can find it in the aisle next to the Snickers. Uh, <laughs> just wherever you listen to podcasts, I'm there. And I'd love to. Are you on Deezer? I don't know what that is. I just heard it from you. I got to get on it. I mean, these apps that give me so much anxiety when new things. I'm now on, I'm on Clubhouse and I'm on TikTok and I don't know what either are, but I know I'm on them. I have no idea what I'm doing with Instagram. I suck at Twitter. I don't like any of that for the most part, but it's it's a necessity. Uh, but yeah, so stand up, be Dominic, anywhere you find your podcast and givewell.org is, slash stand up um, is, is uh, an amazing organization. And if you are a person who donates to charity to alleviate suffering of other people, then this is the organization that you should look into, givewell.org. They do all the research and they make your dollar go the furthest and they, they're they awesome. And I know the people there. And so, yeah, they're my sponsor. And even if they weren't, I'd be talking about it. Pete Dominic, you give well. You give well to us. You th- I'm so thankful that you are here and uh, so thankful to spend time with you. Thanks for-, uh, thanks for I'm honored to be, I love being a guest and it's great to get you to know you, Corey. And thank you so much for having me. Thank you for joining us today. If you appreciate what you've heard here, please go to iTunes or anywhere you get your podcasts. Give us a five-star rating and leave a review. That really helps move us up the chart so others can find out what we're up to here. For Ronnie Nathan, I'm Corey Nathan, and we've been talking politics and religion without killing each other. We'll be back in a few days to do our little part in Tikkun Olam. Tikkun Olam.